Hi, I'm Ellen Pompeo. Welcome to Tell Me. Welcome back. On today's episode, I'm talking to Michelle Harper. Michelle Harper has worked as an emergency room physician for more than a decade at different hospitals. She was chief resident at Lincoln Hospital in the South Bronx and in the emergency department at the Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Philly. She's a graduate of Harvard University and the Renaissance School of Medicine at Stony Brook University. She wrote an incredibly moving memoir about what it means to be a doctor. I think the experience of being a doctor and what it does to people, whether it breaks them or shapes them, however it affects their lives, I think it's a fascinating profession. I find Michelle Harper fascinating. I hope you enjoy this episode of Tell Me. Hi, Michelle. How are you, gorgeous? <laughs> How are you? Oh, Thank my goodness. You. So wonderful meeting you. And actually, we end up kind of matching the colors. Yeah, it's true. We have our <laughs> we have our, calming, our neutrals. <laughs> our neutrals on today. So, first I want to say congratulations on the book. You're an incredible writer. Oh, thank you. Have you always written? I could say yes in a way only because, you know, I was one of the kids who in high school or in the middle of the night I would break out my journal and write poetry. But beyond that, beyond doing that and just going through school, I didn't, and I I lost a lot of my writing once I got on the medical track. So when I had this idea to write the book and then and then finally pursue it, I had to relearn. I had to find my words again. I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to enroll in a course to do this. But of course, I couldn't make any of the courses because I was an attending physician, working shifts, as you know, because your friend who's also in healthcare. So I hired an editor teacher. She teaches courses. And I said, okay, we're going to do my own course. And that's how I'll work on my writing. And then I said, wait, if I'm writing essays, let me just write my book. And so then I just chapter by chapter would show her, get input. And that's how it came to be. Okay, so I should mention the name of the book, Ellen. Mention <laughs> the name of the book. The Beauty and Breaking is the name of the book. And... I'm sorry. I'm so excited to talk to you. There's so much I want to get to. I love the theory of the beauty and breaking. And we'll just start to sort of break it down piece by piece. But I think thematically based on the Japanese art of, mm -hmm. tell us about that. Yes. And I, I practice saying this. I'm going to butcher it. And I apologize to everyone in the world. But Kintsukuroi. Better than I would have done. <laughs> The art of, well, repairing broken pottery. And the theory, as I understand it, is that you have pottery, a treasured objects, and it can be broken just by the mutability of life. There are cracks that appear, it falls, it breaks. But instead of just discarding it, it is repaired with an amalgam of precious metals, whether it's silver, platinum, yellow gold. And so in that process of repairing it that way, the cracks, the breaks are actually highlighted and the vessel is thought to be more beautiful for what it has survived and how it has rebuilt um, thereafter. And I feel the same is true for humans because, because no matter what, part of the deal of being human is that there will be pain and there will be suffering. And so the question is what we do with that and how we heal from that. You know, I never romanticized trauma but I want to acknowledge it and acknowledge that when we take the opportunity to heal ourselves, 
we can then become stronger, more resilient, and then also be there for others and their healing process, should we choose it. And for me, that's the whole point of this life. It's incredible. I loved the analogy so much. It's a Japanese tradition. And, you know, your book opens with a quote by Hazrat. I will butcher this too. I'll do my best. Hazrat Anayat Khan. Mm -hmm. God breaks the heart again and again and again until it stays open. And I think it's incredible. And so I'd love to hear you talk about and tell us Another thing, and I think this is something that you and I actually have in common, and I should say we've never met before, but this really struck me as you had a difficult childhood. Mm -hmm. Your father was abusive toward your mother. Was your father also a doctor? Yes. He was. It, yeah. It's sort of like you touch on it, but not too much. Right. It's more about his abusive nature. But I did gather that, which is an interesting fact, that you chose the same profession. So you used your trauma as a child, and you found a way to make a life with it and sort of monetize it, if you will, make it have a purpose in your life. And I did the same, I think, with, you know, my mother passed away when I was four. This trauma caused all this emotion, right? And so I found a way with acting. I found something to do with all that excess emotion. And that's the thing I'm, I'm most grateful for. And I feel like comparatively in emergency medicine, especially emergency room medicine, you talk about having to assess a situation very, very quickly, unlike a specialist who is getting, seeing a cancer patient or a patient with suffers from migraines or whatever, they have time to look over their information and, you know, it's a series of meetings. With you, you're getting trauma. And it's just flying yeah. in the door, and you have a split second to assess how to treat that person, what to do first. You know, the three of us played a doctor for 18 years. I open, keep the airway <laughs> yes. open, you know, yes. all of these things. And that takes a very special – I always say medicine is a calling, right? Um, especially, I feel that especially true for emergency room physicians because it really is a, a calling because you're literally dealing with trauma after trauma after trauma. Yeah. And – that is a special skill. And so the way that you not only write about it, you have this incredible balance in your writing and it seems in your work and life, you've mastered this incredible balance of writing about trauma, but writing about it with such grace and beauty and conveying, you know, when that baby is on that table and you're having to try to resuscitate, you know, a two-month-old, your heart is just breaking into pieces. And you reach this incredible balance of you're on the edge of your seat with this book and then the grace of your emotion and how you dealt with that. And then similarly in your life, how you deal with this profession, how you deal with this trauma, mm -hmm. how you deal with all the emotion coming at you constantly and find a way to still sleep at night and keep your soul nourished and I think that we could apply this to anyone listening who's in healthcare or anyone who aspires to be in healthcare or just in life in general. I mean, I think a lot of us right now feel like there's so much coming mm -hmm. at us. And you found a great way to balance that. And you talk about that in the book. You tell us about your meditation practice and your yoga. And I think yeah. that's so important. Thank you for that. And I do agree. And I will say, just like yoga, it's a practice. It's a lifestyle. It's part of 
my life. You know, one of the reasons I opened with that quote about God breaks your heart again and again until it remains open is that there will be a steady wave of challenges and opportunities and experiences that break our heart. And they can break us open. You know, one of those experiences, and I speak about this in the memoir, I actually I open with this in the memoir, how I did grow up in an abusive household with a father who was a batterer. And so as a result, my home life was extremely unstable. At any given point of time, I didn't know if there would be danger. Would I need to? Even tiny me, little Michelle me, was strategizing how I could be safe, how I could keep my family safe. And when I say family, I am referring to my sister, who's close in age with me, my brother, who's approximately nine years older than me, my mother. But as a child, this is what I was going through in my mind. So even when I was young, there was this triage system that, you know, now I use those words triage, now I'm an ER doctor, that I was going through because I just had a snapshot. Is this moment safe? Is it not safe? And we have to make an intervention or maybe it just looks like it's unsafe and it's going to blow over. Turns out those are exactly the tools, the skill set that I need to apply now in my profession. And because I knew in an embodied way what it is like to be afraid, what it is like to feel traumatized, whether or not there was actual life threat at the, at the time, I think that's what really, what led me to be drawn to emergency medicine. You know, there was various breakthrough moments. And one breakthrough moment I speak about is when my brother was trying to protect my mother. It happened on many occasions. But this one occasion, he was injured by my father who bit his thumb. And I was a young teenager, just had my permit to drive. And I remember thinking at that time, when I saw my brother's injured hand, I thought, how does someone enact such violence on a family member enough to harm them, could have maimed them, and the injury to me looked gruesome. And I volunteered. I was going to drive my brother to the ER, which I did. And I waited while he was getting help. And I saw while I was waiting all manner of life converge in this space. I mean, this is pre-pandemic, so people could gather in the waiting room. And well, there was a homeless man just needing moments of respite to rest safely from the elements, or a little girl who was brought in bleeding, needing stitches. And then I saw her skipping out healed, or a family, a man being brought in on a stretcher, and the medics are pounding on his chest. They're pumping air into his lungs, and then seeing streams of family member come in, asking for him, looking for him. And one way or another, no matter what happened to him, they were going to have to find a way forward. They were looking for some kind of miracle for him, miracle for themselves. And that was one of those times when I saw that waiting in the ER. I knew that I wasn't alone in this. I knew that we were all looking for healing. And I saw that it was possible. And I knew that I wanted to go on in my life and not only get better myself, and I had this window, this glimpse that I could get better, but that I wanted to be there for others when they felt traumatized, when they were looking for healing. And so 
yes, that's an example of how I've used that pain to get me to the next stages of my life. And I've never forgotten that experiences others. And while we don't forget our trauma, I think that we can heal from it. I think we can live in a way with it that deepens us, that is propulsive in positive ways. I agree. I think that you have the gift of emotional intelligence, you can try to look at that trauma and pain and say, what can I do with this? What can yeah. I turn this into? And the same way the Japanese do with a cracked vase. How can I make this vase beautiful again? How can I use these cracks to make it beautiful? And by using that powdered metal and amalgam yeah. and gluing it back together, they do just that. Mm. And that's incredible. So you talk a lot about your father being abusive. Did your father ever talk about being a doctor? What positives did you take away from the relationship with this person, if any? He did speak about being a doctor. Yes. Like I was very aware of... What kind of doctor was he? Sorry to interrupt. Internal medicine. Okay. So I was aware that he was a physician. I am often asked... Do I think I became a doctor because my father was a doctor? You know, which is common. You know, people go into business with their families or they keep the tradition of that work. You know, they're in the fashion industry, whatever, in their family. I have to say, no, I don't think that's why I did. However, I know for a fact that my home life led me into an acute care setting. So I know if I wasn't an ER doctor, I probably would have been a psychiatrist <laughs> or a social worker or civil rights attorney. I'm pretty positive it would have been a civil rights attorney. So I just think it's the experience I had that was going to lead me to a field to help people in acute crisis. So interesting how, you know, you had this example of a doctor and he too had a choice or didn't yeah. have a choice maybe with his emotional scope to sort of pass that down and chose to pass other things down instead of, you know, he had the privilege to be able to go to medical school and to learn the trade of medicine or the craft of medicine, whatever you want to mm -hmm. call it. And instead, he didn't choose that. He chose. But then by the grace of God, you chose to change that cycle. Yeah. And that takes, you know, a tremendous amount of emotional intelligence and just divine intervention would have been so easy for so yeah. many people to take that rage and pain mm -hmm. and be self-destructive. And you just chased the light instead. I agree. This, in many ways, this was not inevitable because these patterns that were shown, that were taught, that were encoded with in our lives, it's easy to repeat them. And I speak about that. I speak about how I had to look at my childhood and the interactions and the relationships and then make certain decisions because we're all making decisions at every time. They can be conscious or subconscious, but we're still making choices along the way. I speak about a relationship. I've had two major romantic relationships in my life. Which you write about so beautifully, yeah. <laughs> so poetically. They're just fantastic. And the book is just so well balanced between the drama and the, the right. romance and the poetic moments. Sorry to interrupt again. Oh, no, thank you. No, I almost paused because I was like, oh, thank God. I don't know how people have so many relationships. I think it would be exhausting. But I put <laughs> two major ones so far. And um, I speak about how with the second major one, how he was going through trauma of his own a lot of unhealed trauma from his own childhood. 
and being abandoned by his father and then mother who was still present. And how what I didn't realize was as we got to know each other and as the relationship went on, he started reenacting those patterns with me. And I started getting into a pattern of a relationship that became destructive and toxic. And I stepped back and I said, wait a second, didn't I already learn these lessons? Didn't I learn these lessons from my childhood? Now, Michelle, you make a decision. And I made my decision. I had learned those. I had decided to be a warrior, warrior of light. And I let him go. And I let him go out of love with both of my exes, no matter what happened. I appreciate the learning from the experiences. I wish them the best. And I let them go. And I feel like that's what love does. It's not a, a codependent thing. It's for me, how do I interact in a way with a person that's most nurturing? How do I make sure I'm not enabling dysfunction within them? How do I make sure that I'm not allowing them to hurt me, which is not good for them or their development or other people? And sometimes that means moving on. That is a lesson I take from my childhood. This idea of having open eyes and open heart and making intentional decisions. And I'm grateful for that lesson from my childhood. You talk about how you found yoga mm -hmm. and meditation, and I think you started with yoga first and then added yeah. meditation into it. Is that right? It is right. You know, I like so many people, the moving part can be easier. I've read a lot about trauma and how trauma can get literally like, trapped in the body mm -hmm. and can make it hard for us to move and breathe and navigate life and stuck in our thoughts and how just the action of moving can liberate that, liberate that energy and then make some space to process emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. So I'm sure for that reason, that's why I got into the physical practice like so many first. And then as I did that, then yeah, it, it made it more possible for me to add the still meditation piece of it. And I was more comfortable with sitting with my thoughts, allowing my feelings and processing them. Yeah, there's a great piece in the book where you write about the meditation experience, one of your meditation experiences, and you talk about the colors. And I experience that too yeah. when I meditate, which I do on a regular basis. And I think that we should take a second and just talk about it for a minute because to me, whether you're in healthcare or not, as we've established, there's a lot going on right now. Mm -hmm. And social media has brought everything that's going on in the world right to your phone. Similar to like how much you have to process on a shift, everything mm -hmm. coming in those doors every five minutes. Right. Constantly. Constantly coming in the doors. It's almost like we're all faced with every five minutes or something, which is our phone. Right? We scroll. This person yes. died. This person just had a baby. This person yeah. is telling us to meditate. This person's telling us to do yoga. This person right. can stand on their head. How do you stand on your head? I can't stand on my head. Oh, no, someone else died. Oh, you know, oh, no, uh, this know. person's mad at this person for saying something on Instagram. It's just right. so much information that the normal person is not meant to process that much. No. I don't know that we've caught up emotionally or spiritually to how much is getting thrown at us. And I think that what you said is such a good piece of advice. You know, we, if you see it on Instagram, it could sound, depending on what kind of mood you're in, right? Kind of hokey, like, oh, meditate. Oh, do yoga. Yeah, okay, fuck off. Like, I don't have any time to do exactly. yoga. I have nine kids and, you know, I have to work from home and Zooms. 
But the truth is, whatever is getting thrown at us, we do absorb mm-hmm. it. And even if you have five minutes, roll a tennis ball on your leg right. or stretch or just run outside and jump around and scream, I do think that it is very useful and effective to just find a way to really take a moment and acknowledge there's a lot getting thrown at us a lot every day, whether we realize it or not. Even if our Instagram feed is, you know, I constantly try to change my Instagram feed. Mm. I don't want to just only receive information from people that I agree with. I mean, you know, I struggle with this, but I just think it's important to try to switch it up and see other people's points of view and expose yourself to different things. I don't know if we fully understand or process how much is coming at us every day. And it really is important even to take eight minutes out and walk around your yard or stretch or do something to try to get. Because there is this innate connection between our emotional body, our physical body, our spiritual body. Mm-hmm. Even if you're not tapped into those things, and I feel like so much of this country right now is not tapped into their spiritual. They're tapped into their emotional, right? Right. right. <laughs> They're tapped into their psyche and what they believe and how that translates into physical rage or physical mm-hmm. beliefs. You know, we believe we should be able to tell a woman what to do with uh. her body. We believe that we have the right. We take such ownership. When I say we, I don't really mean we because it's not us, girl. <laughs> those men in Texas, those white men in Texas who are deciding what women should be able to do with their bodies. I mean, let's just break that down. Can yeah. we take a hard right right now and just say like six weeks? So you miss your period for two weeks, and then you're going to have to get the day off, go make an appointment. Like It's not happening. So, you know, I agree with Bette Midler. All you men, keep it in your pants in Texas. Exactly. Keep it in your pants, motherfuckers. There's a solution. It takes two to tango. Exactly. Anyway, again, it sounds a little hokey sometimes. You know, on social media, like people talk about meditation and yoga, the word mental health is thrown around Mm -hmm. a lot. It just is really important to just like take some time every day for yourself, whether you're a physician or not, to try to get yourself right. Absolutely. Which, again, is a constant, I feel, centering and coming back to the center. And it's not a one and done because a lot of what's happening right now is so destabilizing. I agree with you. Every time my phone goes off, there's an alert. And I'm like, wait a second. This, again, this other person died. Or wait, we're, we're losing voting rights in these states and women's choice and the other. And people can't protect themselves in school in, in this part of the nation. It is a constant barrage. I am, part of my practice is that I'm rarely on social media. You know, we all have to make decisions. I have been criticized for it. I've had people say, how are you going to do this work? How are you going to be a speaker and writer and not be more active on social media? And I hear that and I appreciate that feedback. I will also say that for me right now, it's an important way for me to manage my energy because I'm very sensitive to energy. So it's just a tool I use. And one of my recent posts during this barrage of very hard things going on in the nation was just me posting myself standing before my in-home yoga practice and saying that, you know, there's going to be more marches, more rallies, more voting, more running for office, all of that. And sometimes the most powerful thing I can do is just to stop and center. And I posted that because 
That's literally what I needed to do. I was so overwhelmed in that moment several days ago that I wanted to put that out there, that that's powerful too, just to stop and pause and gather. And then, yeah, we're going to get up. We're going to rally again and act and try and make positive changes. But taking that moment for me is critical, even when I'm in the ER. And it's a crazy shift. I I was chatting earlier with your team and I was asked, how was your morning? And I was like, morning? Is Is it morning? Because yesterday just kind of melded into last night to today. And during that crazy, busy shift, I said, you know what? I got to go get a granola bar. And that was my break. It was the walk to get the granola bar and the walk back, just small acts sometimes, just to pause, breathe, center. Okay, then now proceed. Tell us what it's like. What's going on in the hospital right now? So you're in Philly. My friend Sheena, she's a telemetry nurse in Philly, and I am just in awe of how she does it. Is COVID up in Philly? And it's this is a whole wave coming, people. So and it's again, I'm not going to go too much on a rant. And I know a lot of healthcare workers don't want to be heroes. They don't want to be called warriors. They don't want to do it. So I won't do that. But I just want everybody to know, anyone who's listening who is unvaccinated, if you're unvaccinated and you don't believe in the vaccine or you think the vaccine is harmful and you don't believe in that science, then I don't know what science in the hospital you think could help you once you get COVID. So you should keep your ass at home and don't expose these healthcare workers to it. Because if the science and the vaccine is not good enough for you, there's nothing they can do for you in the ER that will be comparable to that. So Don't come looking for science to get you out of a mess you put yourself in. It is quite a disconnect, I will tell you. I still live in Philadelphia. I'm practicing in Jersey. Same thing, though, same region. I will say that luckily, thankfully, knock on wood, there's wood right in front of me. While rates are going up and and we're seeing it, it is not like a lot of places in the country for my area now. And I always have to say now because this is fluid. It's dynamic. We just have to see. I'm not seeing as many people sick from COVID. We do have high vaccination rates where I am. So thank God. And I I thank God every day. I'm not seeing sick children with COVID. I am hoping that our vaccination rates continue to stay high and only increase. So that remains to be the case. And thankfully, too, because it's getting busier the way we were before the pandemic, where people are coming in sick with heart attacks, critically ill with infections, strokes, trauma cases. We are busy. Sprinkled in there are people very sick with COVID. Typically, the people very sick with COVID are unvaccinated and healthier. It's not the same kind of, you know, patient who's who has many underlying illnesses where we sadly expect them to be more susceptible and decompensate when another illness is thrown into the mix. No, I'm seeing otherwise healthy younger adults sick with COVID, sick enough so they have to be admitted to the hospital and readmitted. So I agree with you. I hope that people will engage in this process in a way that is helpful to them. You know, when I see people who are ill with COVID, they don't want to be sick. Many of them do have regrets and understand that it wasn't a good decision. (laughs) It just wasn't. They didn't believe in the vaccine before, And now they're experiencing it firsthand and they feel, oh, wait, actually, I need to get vaccinated. And I'm going to tell everybody I know to get vaccinated. On the other hand, 
I am seeing people who maybe they're not sick enough to be admitted. They didn't believe in the vaccine. They still don't because the tough thing is right now, the segment of the population that is now unvaccinated, you know, their hesitation is pretty robust. It's very difficult to change. It is extremely sturdy right now. And you're right. A lot of these same people, they're like, I don't want to get the vaccine. They'll tell me about all the various conspiracy theories and misinformation they've heard. Yet, they do want monoclonal antibodies. <laughs> they do want the other treatments that are emergency <laughs> use authorization. Very safe. They're the very good. It just isn't <laughs> rational. But it doesn't. There's nothing rational about it. I mean, I, I have said to people, so, you know, the vaccines are safe. The treatments we have, like monoclonal antibodies, also are safe. But you do understand you don't want a vaccination that is now fully FDA approved, but you do want this emergency use authorization treatment. You you understand blank stare. <laughs> so I don't I, I don't know. Now. I mean, I don't mean to laugh, yeah. but it's just, um, you know, what else can you do? It's just it's yeah. just nonsensical. It just the argument isn't. I mean, if, if, if you know, if you didn't trust the vaccine and then when you get sick you stay home then that's okay because you're consistent in your belief system where you don't believe in medicine you don't believe in science and you don't yeah. you're just going to stay home but for you not to believe in a vaccine that doctors are suggesting you get but to be okay with the treatment that doctors suggest you get once you get covid there's just inconsistency there there's a lot of inconsistency. And I will say, I'm going to do my little doctor thing. Yes, do my it. My little doctor thing. Do that it. I want everyone to come in who needs treatment, and we will treat you. <laughs> we will treat you. We will treat you. I want to treat you. The other thing is, I also believe that what's happening with COVID in this nation, as many pandemics, you know, the, the pandemic we have directly with COVID, the pandemic we have with racism, with misogyny, with this war we have against working class and poor. I mean, all of these pandemics we need to face. And I understand that people grow and learn at different rates. So one of the things that helps me to stay sane when I am faced with this just radical lack of consistency and knowledge is reminding myself that we grow and learn at different rates. I've made mistakes in my past that I regret and I've learned from. And this may be one of those opportunities, you know, when I see the young, healthy guy who's super fit and would be attractive if he wasn't so stubborn and selfish, <laughs> when I see him sick with COVID because he didn't want to feel achy after a vaccine, but now I have to admit him to the hospital, he made a mistake like we've all made mistakes. And hopefully during this time, while we're treating him in the ER and then admitting him to the hospital, he's going to have a lot of time to think because he's on isolation. I hope he gets healthier. I hope he learns from this. And I hope he can then help others not to make the same mistake. And I just have to tell myself that so I can keep doing this work because I think we all deserve a chance. I love the way you wrapped up the book. I'm not going to do this justice, but in brief you say that you realize that everyone has their journey. Everybody mm -hmm. has their own contract, right? And I think that that's such a mindful way to move through life is to know that everybody, you talk about the 
the drug addict who, mm-hmm. you know, despite you trying to help him, rips the IV out of his arm, is belligerent and screaming and swearing, and, like, you're trying to help him, and he just doesn't have the time for you, and, and you're exhausted, too. You've been working all night. You're, you know, just gave another man basically confirmed that he probably has terminal yeah. cancer and his cancer has metastasized in his chest. And that man handled that information with such grace. Yeah. And here you're confronted with, you know, selfishness, but in another room, a dire prognosis is handled with so much grace. There's just so much of the spectrum that you are exposed to and you have found a way by saying everybody has their own path. And I'm not going to take that personally, which is very hard to do when you're trying to treat a drug addict and he's swinging and flailing and ripping IVs out, his blood's going everywhere. And he's being so selfish. For you to have the presence of mind and of spirit to say, that's his journey. He has to learn his lessons. You're a better woman than me, Michelle. (laughs) Um, But I admire you so much, and that's why I wanted to have you on. And so the next thing I want to ask you is, you can tell I get so excited by doctors, everybody, (laughs) obviously. I geek out over doctors. I really do. Sorry. I love it. (laughs) Tell me, what do you think, like, what can you say? Because I I do know a lot of doctors and a lot of nurses, right? And so I'm passionate about this space. For people in medical school, or have the aspiration to be in medical school or want to be a nurse or want to be a doctor or want to be a surgeon. Now, we know black healthcare workers face mm-hmm. a whole different set of circumstances. And I know so many that have just quit, right? Yeah. And decide to be authors or whatever. It's just too much for them to take. And that's completely understandable. You can see, we can see why. A lot of people can't, mm-hmm. but we can see why. Um, oh, I've heard why. I don't physically see it, but... I can have empathy for it and understanding for sure. And I think that your expectations in doing something as hard as pursuing a career in healthcare is so much work, so much schoolwork, so much reading, so much terminology, so many lectures. The work is so hard, but yet you have to manage your expectations. And I think this is true of any career, really. You go to school, but nothing actually really prepares you. You did all that school, but then your first night in the ER or your first week or month in the ER, when that little baby comes in, it's just like, holy shit. Like there was no lecture about having to revive a two-month-old adorable little baby who's blue right Right. now. You know, so what advice do we give to young people who want a career – in healthcare, and how do we keep them inspired? How do we keep them managing their expectations so they're not so disappointed when they actually get on the floor and see the administrative messes and everything? How do we encourage young people to still want to pursue a career in healthcare? That is a large reason why I wrote this book and I speak to people. I'll tell you, I was just speaking with a group of medical students in California, which I love doing, and they ask similar questions, and they hear what's going on. They're in the beginning of their career. They hear how there's record unemployment for physicians. They know many people who graduate with a lot of debt, like hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, and now can't find a job just the way that the for-profit healthcare system is structured in the U.S. until we change it. They've seen their colleagues being abused by patients, sometimes physically punched, spit at, cursed at, or 
passed over for jobs. I mean, that's one of the reasons I speak about some of the experiences I've had when a patient in South Philly punched me in the face and how I had to care for myself physically and emotionally after that, how when I was going for a promotion at a hospital because I wanted to work in the ER, but then I thought have more impact by doing administrative work and going for this hospital position as well. And I interviewed and enjoyed my interviews. I love meeting new people, talking to people. So I I thought it was enjoyable. I like getting dressed up for interviews. And waited for the day when my ER director was going to bring me in the office and tell me how I got the job. But instead, what he told me was, you know, Michelle, you did great. You interviewed so well. You're super qualified. But they just don't want to hire someone right now. They're just, yes, you were the only applicant, but they're just going to leave it open. I hope you stay on anyway. Because the thing is, this hospital just doesn't promote women or people of color. So they always leave, but I hope you stay. I resigned. And I did find out that not long after um, the hospital felt it was the perfect time to hire. And they did. They hired a white male nurse for the position. And part of the reason I, I speak about the challenges with healthcare is because I do want people to have realistic expectations. Yes, there's the part of bringing children back to life who are brought in dead sometimes. We can bring them back. We can treat somebody who's having an acute heart attack and give them a second lease on life. We can do that. There are these other parts as well, and it's true. We typically don't read about them, or even when we do, it's very different when we're in the moment and we're the doctor in charge and walking into the shift feels like Literally, my first day felt like I was walking the plank. (laughs) And despite the challenges that happened, like a steady barrage of challenges, we still have to, if it's our calling to be there, get through the shift, take care of each patient, no matter what. And that's why I discuss it. And I often say to students, and we're all really students, I often say that it's very difficult work. It's very meaningful work. It's critical work. And it's not for everyone. It's not. And if this is your calling, we need you. We desperately need you. We need good people in this field to deliver the good care within the parameters that we have now and to make it better. I have a whole other platform that I do. I don't know if you're familiar with it at all. It's called Healing Healthcare. No. I do it with Sheena my nurse friend in Philly. We have an Instagram and we have a series of videos on YouTube. I'd love you to be a part of that also if you wanted to, because I think your message is so necessary. We're trying to create a platform and a space to talk about the cracks in the healthcare system in a very positive healing way. And we are trying to just make a little bit of a difference and provide a platform for healthcare workers to find some peace and solace and some motivation and inspiration to continue on with, you know, as much love as possible. So I'm so excited to talk to you today. And I just want to tell you about that because you really fit right in with what we're trying to do. And um, I'm grateful that you're on this planet. Thank you. And I would love to. And you are speaking my language, which is part of the reason why I stay in healthcare and want to stay. And I always say is the radical honesty of recognizing the situation, like the good, the bad, the ugly, the difficult but also the opportunities therein. And I don't want to abandon this field. I want it to 
live up to its mission. And I believe it's possible. I think we can do it. It's so interesting to me. I had this conversation with my friend Sheena this morning about the way hospitals run. And, you know, I just read an article about the CEO of Nike on Sunday about what he does and how he practices and what kind of culture they try to create at Nike. And certainly they've made some mistakes, too. Every company makes mistakes. As you said, we all make mistakes. But it seems like healthcare and hospitals are the last one to jump on this workplace culture renaissance bandwagon. Like, everybody's jumping on. I think Nike just gave everybody a week off or something, right? But certainly the idea of a happier workplace culture and now having been through what we've just been through with everybody realizing, a lot of people realizing that they could A, either work from home or B, can't work from home because they choose not to and they want to be parents. And we know how many women have left the workforce during covid But, you know, it seems like hospitals are really archaic in the way that they're expecting all of you healers to just be robots and machines Mm -hmm. and not be able to take time to heal yourselves. If anyone needs weeks off, it's healthcare workers. And it's our system, like so many things, is so backwards, right? Again, to talk about, you know, so they're not going to promote a black person or a black Mm -hmm. doctor in this role. Why? Because black people don't come in the hospital because black people don't want to see themselves when they come in with a gunshot wound or they come in with a heart attack. A black person with brown skin doesn't want to look up and see a brown skin doctor and feel safe. And the outcome will be better with better outcomes. Your profits go up. So brown skin doctors make financial sense. Forget about the the human component. Don't get me started on that. But if we're just talking about profits and losses, pretty sure brown people come into the ER too, come into the hospital too. And we all know that whether it's the black maternal mortality rate or Mm -hmm. any kind of health crisis, we know that brown skinned people, their outcomes are better when they feel seen, protected, and cared for. And we know that brown skinned physicians are the ones to do that. So if anybody is listening that owns a hospital, this is where your profits are going to be better by making sure that all people are cared for. People don't always feel cared for when they don't see themselves represented. But I think we certainly know enough now to say that brown people definitely feel safer in the hands of brown physicians. You are right. We have reams of data on it, on disparities. And we know what we can do to fix those disparities. I mean, I am depending on what day, what paper, but one of two, two and a half, you know, percent of black women physicians in the U.S. That's not representative. I say mean, that again. Ta- Sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but say it again. Yeah. Two, two percent. Two, yeah. Of black female doctors in the U.S. Now, and add to that, like I, I'm usually in major cities just because I, I, I tend to live in major cities. And in the Northeast, but it is not uncommon for me to be the only black ER doctor or maybe, you know, one of a couple, maybe they have some moonlighters every once in a while. It's not representative of the communities where I work. You know, when I walk down, I always give my hallway example. In every hospital, I'm sure this is true for other corporate offices, there's always, there's a hallway of portraits over time, the leadership in the hospital. And typically, no matter where you are in the country, it's a portrait of old white men who, you know, do their gender in such a way that it reads heterosexual. But no matter where you are in the nation, 
you know, half the country are women. That wall isn't representative anywhere. And what you feel every day when you walk by that wall, that wall signifying the stakeholders, who the hospital feels are the stakeholders, who the hospital values to be leadership over time. And that's what you see that has an impact. But it's, it's also meaningful because it truly is telling you what they stand for. So until we're in a place where there is inclusion, there is diversity, and we know that having different voices there, people with different experiences, people at the table who know what it's like to live with different disabilities, who know what it's like to have been poor and homeless, these viewpoints make it so that we know how to address the needs of humans We need these viewpoints at the table. And yes, you're right. Then we have better outcomes. So I hope that is becoming infused into healthcare. But I'm going to be honest. It's not going to happen just on its own. We have to make it happen, which is why I stay. Because I'm not ready. I'm not ready to leave. I believe healthcare should be a right. And I believe that it's in doing this work. One day we will have inclusion. One day we will have representation And we'll be able to take care of people, the people who work in hospitals, the people who come to hospitals, because at the end of the day, we are a community and we can do this. Optimism is a thread (laughs) in her her whole entire spirit, in her book. Michelle Harper, this has absolutely been a joy to spend an hour with you today and feel your energy and your vibration. And again power of positivity is if there's one thing when you finish this book and now after talking to you you definitely live it and breathe it and I'm so grateful that I got to spend this time with you today I'm grateful for your time and your energy I'm grateful for your mission and your work trying to make the world a better place and I love you and I'm so happy to know you and I hope we can have more conversations Oh, I would love to. It's been a pleasure and a delight. And thank you. And even though you accused me of being optimistic, I am so so grateful to spend time with you all. We could do a part two bitch fest. (laughs) (laughs) Have a great day, doctor. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye.